Well, good morning. I'd ask that you would take God's Word into your hands and turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. It is uh, good to be uh, able to preach again. Uh, There are many prayers that were answered last week uh, throughout my life who have prayed that I wish he just wouldn't be able to talk. And many teachers and uh, relatives, I'm sure, at times have prayed that prayer. And all of a sudden, one week, the first time in my life, I lost my voice. I got it back around really full force about Wednesday or Thursday and uh, not sure why all that took place. But I'm glad to be back up here again. Uh, It was an incredible week last week. I was told by a couple people uh, when they heard that I wasn't preaching uh, last week that we'll be able to get out on time. And uh, I do want to warn you that we got out as late as we always get out, and there wasn't even a message. So it's not always the preacher who is to blame. This week it may be, but that's all right. But for the last couple weeks, uh, in fact, uh, for the last six weeks, we have been looking at this series that we have entitled The Amazing Change. What a week to talk about change. We look at our uh, weather. We went from 70, almost 75 degrees and sunny at the beginning of the week to, I don't know how warm it is today, but probably in the low 40s, maybe even the high 30s. What an amazing uh, change in weather temperatures. Uh, I look out to uh, the trees that are uh, near our home, and uh, a week ago they were full of leaves, and and now they are uh, finding themselves becoming more and more bare. Uh, This time of year is a time where we see amazing change. Even in our world of politics, as Ray has already uh, spoken about, uh, in a matter of one day, uh, millions of people go into voting booths and there is change. Every four years, an opportunity for change when it comes to the leadership of our country. We find ourselves desiring uh, change in so many different facets of life, not just as we see it in the world around us, as we see it in our political uh, systems, but we also see uh, change happening in the lives of us as people. Uh, We find ourselves so many times desiring change because there's something about us that we want to be different whether it's parts of our body, whether it's uh, a different outlook on life, whether it's a new job or a new direction in life, for many of us as human beings, we desire change. Our world is full of that desire. In fact, they go after one thing or another, trying to find that one change that will make their life uh, the best that they would want it to be. But Scripture says that in light of all those changes, there is nothing that we as human beings can do to radically change who we are and what we know of this world and life. The only way the Bible says that we can do that is to encounter Jesus Christ. And that's what this series is all about. And that's why we've spent so much time focusing in on testimonies. Because so many times we find ourselves forgetting that we are a people who have been changed. Just like the Apostle Paul, uh, who was walking towards the road, or walking on the road towards Damascus, found himself encountering Jesus Christ face to face while he was an enemy of God. God in that moment, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, would forever change Paul. 
He would change his name, of course, before coming to know Christ. His name was Saul. He was a hater of Christianity. He was a hater of Jesus Christ. And he had all uh, his desire and struggle in life was to end Christianity as he knew it. And so that's where we find ourselves. Acts chapter 9, uh, verses 1, all the way, we're going to be looking all the way through verse 31 in this series. And we find ourselves in verses 17 through 19. Let me just read that for us here and uh, we will move on. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Let's stop there for a moment. Now understand, we are working through a story. The author of this story is Luke, the doctor. He wrote all of the book of Acts and he's writing, he's telling of the story of the Acts of the Apostles in the first church. And in Acts chapter 9, he comes to the story uh, of Paul coming to know Christ. This is an important thing because uh, Paul would become a huge part in uh, the New Testament church. He would be one of the greatest men during that time. In fact, because of his writings, he wrote more of the New Testament than any other uh, human being. Because of his writings, he would become one of the greatest men of all time. And as a result of that, we have to look at Acts chapter 9 to find out what made this man who he was. But it's amazing to know who he was before he met Christ. The sinner that he was, our public reading of the scripture today talked about him saying he was the worst of all sinners. This wasn't just your run-of-the-mill sinner. This was the worst of all sinners. Remember, in, in pursuing Christianity and trying to destroy it, He had given the approval to kill one of the uh, first disciples of the new church, Stephen. Remember? Stephen's declaring the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel that you and I proclaim today. Saul can't stand it, and the group of people that are with him desire to uh, kill Stephen. And Saul says, go ahead and do it. And Luke tells us earlier in the book of Acts that they laid their coats before him because it gave the picture of Saul's approval of what was taking place. And so Saul finds himself heading out to Damascus. The reason why is he wants to round up everybody who calls themselves a Christian. And so what he does is he heads out about 100, uh, 100, uh, 120 miles north of Jerusalem in a city of Damascus, which of course is in modern day Syria uh, today. We find ourselves, uh, we find uh, Saul heading up there Scholars say about three-quarters of the way, they believe, to Damascus, Saul and his companions are blinded by a light. And Saul uh, looks up and he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's the voice of Jesus. Saul comes face to face with Jesus and he is blinded as a result of it. Now our text tells us that what takes place after that is that Saul is told by Jesus Christ himself to go into Damascus and wait until he is told what to do. And that's where our text picks things up because Saul is in Damascus. He's in a house of a man named Judas. 
And he's there. It says that he's waiting there. He's not eaten anything or drank any drink, but he finds himself praying, communing with this God that he has now met. But there's other things going on in the story. We know that in that same town of Damascus, a man by the name of Ananias, who is a disciple of Christ, who was uh, a a man well uh, respected in his uh, circle of influence, that he is given a vision. And the vision is, is that he is told of Saul. He's told of his blindness. He's told of his conversion. And that the job of Ananias was to go to Judas's house, to go and meet Saul, place his hands upon him, and heal him of his blindness. And that's what we find Ananias doing. He enters into that home. He places his hands on Saul. And what takes place then? The Bible says, Luke, the great physician, says, he says it was like scales fell from his eyes. His blindness is taken away. And so that brings us to our text today where it says in Acts 9.17 that in uh, this time he places his hands in verse 17 on Saul and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me. And he talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. But then it goes on and says he was healed like scales fell from his eyes. He could see again. He got up. He was baptized. He took some food, regained his strength. And it says he spent several days there. Now, what I want to do is I want to look at three very important words, I believe, in this text. The first one is, is the word brother. The second one I see in there is the, the word baptized. And the final one is spent many day, or several days with the disciples. Now you would say, how can you come up with a message from uh, those three words and talk on the subject of fellowship uh, with the saints? When I thought up uh, putting together a series like this, I began to think about how I could take a narrative, a story about a certain, uh, s- certain amount of events and take them and apply them to our lives as Christians. And this is what I wrote in the overview of this series. It happened at a moment's notice. Saul was transformed. It wasn't just a temporary or superficial change. It was deep. It was total. And it was forever. Paul no longer fought against Christ and his message. Instead, he stood up for Christ and the gospel. He was no longer on the side of Satan and evil fighting and evil fighting the light. Rather, on the side of the light, he fought Satan and evil. From that very day that Paul met Christ, the history of the world began to change. Paul is broken. I'm sorry, Paul is the pattern and it began on the road to Damascus when he surrendered his will to Christ. He was broken. He was recreated as a new man and his transformation began. And the change that Paul experienced is available to all who desire it. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, we too can be transformed to become more like Jesus. Now listen to what I have written next. This is important. Acts 9 gives us a pattern of change that Paul experienced, which should be in all believers So during this next series, we will explore the eight key aspects of change that should take place in every believer when we come face to face with Jesus. As we look at the life of Saul, 
we see that we had a flawed standing just as he did. We saw that our flawed standing would not be able to be taken care of. It would not be able to be remedied until we had faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is from there that we see that in the life that is given over to Jesus Christ, prayer should be an important element. Service should be an important element as well. Also, the filling of the Holy Spirit. All of these are important attributes of the life that has been transformed by Christ. But the one that we see next is the fellowship of the saints. Now, we don't know all that transpired in Acts 9. It seems that it's pretty uh, quiet. Acts 17, uh, 9, 17 through 19, Luke doesn't give any fireworks. He doesn't speak of any arguments. But I like what John MacArthur says of what we might have done had we been Ananias when it was time to go to this killer of Christians, Saul. What would your response have been as you entered into that house? Would it have been to uh, call him brother as Ananias did and to fellowship with him as a new saint in the kingdom? This is what John MacArthur says. We might have wanted to say to Saul something entirely different in that encounter. As I enter into the room, my response could have been the following. Well, Saul, you're a Christian now, but let me tell you a couple things. You've been a real creepy character, and none of us around here like you. All of this nonsense of killing Christians is a bit much, Saul. Did you really have to do that? Why would someone who loves the Word so much as you did as a Pharisee, why would you do something like murder? I hope you realize what you've done, Saul, and how thankful you ought to be that we as Christians would even accept you. Would that be your response? A hater of Christianity coming into this place, saying that he's been changed by the person and work of Jesus Christ? And would our response be that of, well, we've got to accept you. God tells us we have to, but we don't have to like it. We don't have to uh, enjoy it, but we'll do it anyway. Imagine the heart of Ananias as he walks in knowing that his enemy is standing before him, and yet knowing that his enemy has been changed. Who's your greatest enemy in, in this world today? Who is it? What happens if they came to you? And without saying anything about the issues that you have, that they say, I met Jesus Christ. What would your response be? Ananias, filled with trepidation, full of, I'm sure, fear, but there seems to be almost a sense, if you will, and I may be speculating a little more than I should, but a sense of real anticipation because he enters into that place, he places his hands on Saul and he says, Brother Saul. There's no talk of his past life. There's no talk of, of uh, the kind of life that, even, uh, that he was pursuing. Many scholars believe that Ananias may have been one of the people that Saul was going to try to capture and take back to Jerusalem because he was a faithful disciple of God. And yet, what does he say? He says, Brother Saul. He gives him a word of endearment. You don't call everybody brother. And yet he calls this man brother. Now notice what else he does. He heals him of his blindness. He heals him. Next we see that they gave him food, drink, and rest. They baptized him. 
brought him into the kingdom as a result of being able to uh, signi- uh, symbolize and signify his uh, allegiance to Christ and the people of God. And it says that they spent time with him. This is, not, this is not a group of people that seems are apprehensive about this man, but they saw a change and let him be a part of the family of God. This is what I have in my notes. I wrote this down. This is a classic illustration of Christian forgiveness and a pursuit of fellowship. I don't care what you've done to Christ or to Christians before you came to Christ. Because the moment you come to Christ, listen, you belong with us as Christians. We will love you as fully as we love any believer. What you've done in your past is immaterial. It's irrelevant when it comes to our fellowship with one another. We forget the things that are behind because you are on a new team now. You're in a new family. It's a new world. And as a result of that... We are to pursue the things that God has for us in this family. It is only Christ that can bring such a transformation. The greatest transformation is the following. Saul, one of the most uh, bitterest enemies of the cross, who was subdued by grace, captured by the love of Jesus Christ, and was called brother by his fellow mankind. Who has changed more, Ananias or Saul? I'm sure Saul was thinking, they're going to kill me. I'm blind. I'm weak. I've had this crazy encounter. Now these Christians, they have their opportunity to put me away. And yet, what do they do? They love him. They love him. They loved him. As a result of that, we don't know all that transpires in Acts 9, 17, but it gives us a pattern. It gives us a pattern as Christians You see, he spent time with them. One of the commentaries that I read said that he associated with them. He began to see the goodness of the Christians. He saw what they were, what they were all about. He saw the work of Christ going on in their life. And it seems that he was radically changed by that. How do we know that? Not from Acts 9, 17 through 19, but we see it throughout Saul's or Paul's life. Because in all of Paul's writings, in almost every one of his books... He speaks with terms of endearment towards the people of God. Why? Because I believe with all my heart he was radically changed by that experience in Damascus. He should have been beaten. He should have been abused. At least he should have been locked up in a room because people couldn't trust him and he was shown love. Oh, this is something that we as a people must learn. But to be able to do that, to be able to understand it, we've got to look at Paul's words somewhere else. So let's turn to Philippians chapter 1 this morning to have a greater understanding of what it truly means to be a part of the fellowship that either Paul experienced here in uh, Acts 9 or we know at some point he saw the uh, fullness of it. In Philippians chapter 1, we see something of great importance as we study this subject of fellowship. And we see the following. I'm going to ask that you would stand as uh, we read God's Word together. And this is where we'll be for the rest of our morning. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with all the overseers, that's elders and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to what he says to these people that he loves. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion 
until the day of Christ Jesus. Now it is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Father God, we come before you. We ask for your anointing over this time in your word. Lord, we want to experience uh, the love and fellowship of your children as we see throughout Paul's life that he did. And Lord, I pray that we would be known as a church that fellowships together, but not just using a word that we think we have a meaning for, but Lord, to truly understand what it means to not only fellowship with you, uh, but to fellowship with each other in this place. Lord, we will spend all eternity fellowshipping together, worshiping you for all that you've done as we enter into eternity. So Lord, it is all the more important that we recognize that today. Take away anything that would hinder us from this type of fellowship so that we can in turn be a blessing as Ananias and these Christians were a blessing to a new Christian named Saul. Do you receive the glory and honor for all that is said and done in this place and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. This word fellowship, for those who uh, don't know much Greek, many, if they've ever uh, spent any amount of time in uh, churches, would know that the word in the Greek for fellowship is the word what? Koinonia. Okay? The word koinonia. It's a very popular Greek term. In fact, it's used, this word koinonia, 19 times in the New Testament. It's translated four different ways in the New Testament. Twelve times it's translated fellowship. Three times it's translated sharing. Two times it's translated partnership. In fact, in uh, Philippians chapter 1, uh, verse 5 says, Because of your koinonia in the gospel, because of your partnership. That's how it's used there. And two times in the New Testament as a contribution. This word koinonia is an important word. It gives the idea of having a connection and commonality through a specific attribute. This word koinonia is always found in an active way. Fellowship is never passive. Partnership is never passive. Contributions are never passive. This Greek word gives the picture that it is active. If we are going to be a part of the fellowship, it means we are going to be active in our response to others. As a result of that, we find in the world that the world seeks fellowship. In fact, the two places in this world where fellowship are best uh, seen, one on one end of the spectrum and the other on, of course, the other side, the church should be a place on the positive end where fellowship is playing a huge part in our experience together. But I will tell you, as evangelical churches in our generation today, we find ourselves limiting the fellowship. We put uh, 
parameters about uh, how the schedule of a morning is going to go. And we find ourselves moving people into one activity and out to another and not allowing true fellowship to take place. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, the place where we see fellowship happening in a great way, uh, except in the wrong place, is in your local establishment, a bar. In fact, in the 80s, when I was growing up, one of the most popular shows was the show Cheers. It was a place where what? Everybody knew your name. It was a place you went to and confided in others in the pains and sufferings you had. And there you would find acceptance. There you would find love. There you would find support. And so what we find is a world that seems to desire fellowship. And we try to find it on this broad spectrum. For us as Christians, we say it's in the church. For those who find themselves on the other side, they say, find it in the things of this world. I have uh, some family members uh, who scoff at uh, Amanda and I being so involved in the fellowship uh, of the local church. And they say, why do you do all that? Why are you spending all your time at church? Because we love it. Well, why? Because our friends are there. The people who love us the most and, and, and uh, care for us in so many special ways, they're there. And while they can't stand church, uh, these relatives of mine, the one thing they will say is, is we don't have any friends. We don't have anywhere that we can call home. We go to work. We may go work out at the gym, but everybody's focused in on their own thing and we come home to the same empty house. And so what they've tried to do is look for community. They have some dogs uh, and they try to find uh, groups that have the same type of dogs. They find themselves trying to do all that they can to try to find community, fellowship, that which they can partner with. And yet I will tell you, the only place that I believe it can happen is within the local church, where there can be commonality, where there can be uh, of the same thinking. Now, as we approach this idea of fellowship, we can fall to three different extremes. Number one, as we approach this word fellowship, even before we get to our notes, we have the tendency to say we don't need it. We have the tendency to say we don't need it. There are some even here today who have come just to hear a good message, I hope, to listen to some good music, and they say at the end of the day, it's just my relationship with God is a thing between me and Him, no one else. It's not about anybody else, it's about me. And so I come, I I feed, I uh, take in good uh, Christian things, and then I go home and I take care of life on my own. And, And for those, they say I don't need it. Another one is that we take in fellowship, uh, but we don't do anything to give it back. There are some here who, who walk in and they say, I'm a part of the fellowship of Village Bible Church. And, and the, the process that they have is that they find themselves taking and taking and enjoying and, and feeding off the goodness of the fellowship. And yet they find themselves never giving into the part, uh, partnership of the fellowship with the saints. Remember, you cannot be passive and say you're a part of fellowship. You can't say you're, pa- you can't be passive and say you participate. Those two words in the English language don't fit together. Participation means action. And so when we talk about fellowship, this isn't something we can say, I just enjoy uh, receiving good fellowship. You can't. If you're going to be a part of fellowship, you have to be active in it. The final one is, is that uh, we rely, this is on the other end of the spectrum, we rely so much on fellowship that we forget our need to spend time alone with Christ. 
what we do is we get involved in a great small group. We get involved in a great Sunday school class. We find ourselves in a part of a great church and, and the ministries that are a part of it. And, and it may be so good that you even see your life in Christ growing in maturity. And you've taken in all this stuff. And you say, wow, I love the fellowship at Village Bible Church. It's amazing. We're growing. And yet, when was the last time you opened God's word for yourself? When was the last time you prayed without a small group being assembled or a worship service being put together? We find ourselves so many times falling in love. And this is where we, as especially Christians, I know myself, can fall prey to because we think that the walk with Christ isn't just about ourselves, but it's with everybody. We do it within community, yes, But as you look at the life of Jesus, he spent time in community. He had fellowship with 12 men, the disciples. But what would the scripture say time and time again? He would withdraw himself from the crowd and go spend private time with his father. That is uh, the tension that we have. Fellowship, yes, is important, but it must never take away our personal involvement with God. So what are we to learn from this? As we look at this experience that Saul has in Acts 9, 17 through 19, we look to Philippians to find out some common things about the text that we just read. The first thing we need to understand about fellowship is if we are going to have fellowship, then it revolves around having a common savior. It involves uh, itself with a common savior. Notice what he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace, peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Two verses, three times Paul says, the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, is the reason why I'm going to write you this letter. The reason why I am uh, devoting myself to the work of the ministry. The reason why I went from being the hater named Saul to being one who was changed was because of this person, Jesus Christ. This is important for us to remember as we uh, are involved in fellowship. Because there's this idea that the reason why we are who we are is because of some sort of commonality uh, that we have. That there's something, maybe it's because of geography that we've uh, gathered here together today. But that wouldn't be the case because there are many different churches we could be a part of. Why is it that we've chosen this one? Well, the first thing that we need to understand is that fellowship begins with a common savior. The reason why you're here today isn't because you share all of the ideals of everyone else in this crowd. In fact, let's do just a quick test for a moment. How many of you, if you had to make a decision between Burger King or McDonald's, how many would say that they like McDonald's? Raise your hand. How many would say Burger King? We have a divided church. Have it your way right away, it looks like the kind of church we are. Let me ask you another question. If you were able to go to a ball game in Chicago during the summer, how many of you would head south of Chicago? A lot of people need to be saved in this room. How many would go to the north side? We're a divided group. Let me keep asking you some more questions. How many of you live uh, south of Sugar Grove? See a show of hands. How many of you live west of Sugar Grove? Show your hands. How many of you live north of Sugar Grove? 
How many of you live east of Sugar Grove? That doesn't bring any commonality to us. In Sugar Grove. It's not enough that we have our church in your town. You've got to say it even more. So that doesn't bring commonality. Even on the elder team, we were coming back from an elder retreat and uh, I was driving, which is a scary thought to think, you know, we left Mario back from the elder retreat knowing that I would be driving. It's kind of that line of succession thing that they do at the State of the Union. If we all die, you know, there's one to rule the, the church if we need to. And so, uh, so Mario would have been a part of that. And, uh, and I remember asking, because I, I love the diversity that we have on the elder team. And we started talking about our love for music. And we started saying, well, what radio stations uh, do you find yourself listening to? And what I would do is go to that radio station uh, in the car. I know it's pretty pathetic, but we as elders have really no lives. But here's the thing. It was a broad spectrum. I was really surprised that our chairman listens to the kind of heavy metal music that, uh, that, that he does. I'm kidding. No, he doesn't. But there was a wide variety of likes and dislikes, even on the very small subject of music. We don't have commonality when it comes to the things of this world. The reason why we are here, the reason why we devote ourselves to this place isn't because we like all like the building or all like the location or all like the start of the serving time. The reason why we are here is because we have been changed by the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's it. He's it. There's nothing else. It wouldn't be even hard. I wouldn't do it because I want to keep the job. It wouldn't be hard to ask how you voted, not just on the big vote, if you will, but across the board last Tuesday. Some of us didn't even vote. We say it's a waste of time. We can't find commonality as Christians, not because we're supposed to, but the reason why we are Christians per our title, is because of Christ. So because of Christ, what do we see? Quickly, we see that as a result of Christ, we embrace the same Father. A couple of weeks ago, my, uh, my son Noah and his uh, cousin Jacob were over at my parents' house. And they got into this dialogue that I think all children at some point do because they begin to start realizing how we are connected as a family and I remember when uh, Noah said to Jacob, that's my Papa Bill. And Jacob says, no, Noah, he's my Papa. And then there's this little argument between a six-year-old and a four-year-old about whose Papa he is. And my dad comes up and, and just like a great big Papa that he is, grabs him and he says, I'm both of your Papas. And they said, well, that makes us brothers. Well, no, that's not right either. It makes you cousins. Well, how does that work out? Well, just as Noah, you have a brother named Joshua, I have a brother named Joel. Joel is, of course, Jacob's daddy. And it connected them. They knew that they were no longer friends or just kind of common ships that are passing along in the ocean. But there was relationship now. And as a result of Christ, look at what Paul says. He says, grace and peace to you, in verse 2, from God our Father. To a Jewish individual, this would have been unheard of to call God your Father. And yet Paul does it time in and time out. He says that we are to call him Abba Father, Daddy, Daddy. 
We have a common father. Next, we experience the same favor. We experience the same favor. Paul goes on and he uses the term grace. Let's stop there for a moment. Charis is the Greek word there where we get charity uh, in our English words. And what this means is we are given unmerited favor. No matter who we are, no matter how we came to know Christ, no matter what we did before knowing Christ, we have all experienced the same favor, the same grace in Christ Jesus. Now think about this way. Just because you sinned a lot didn't mean that God had to pour out the dump truck of grace upon you. And then there's that one that came to know Christ at four years of age and did all the right things and every once in a while said a little white lie or something and God just brings out the measuring cup and just a wee bit of grace, just a little bit. Let me tell you something. The same grace that was extended uh, to a little child who comes to a faith in Christ Jesus to Tim Bidall, who has done a myriad of difficult and, and, and wrong things in his life, to Adolf Hitler, the same grace, the same amount of grace has been extended. So here's the application to this important part of the text. The one thing that we struggle with as a church, not just us, but churches as a whole, is we become prideful. We become arrogant. We begin to think we're all this, that, wow, you know, I'm a really great Christian because a lot of people go into my Sunday school class, or I'm a real great uh, Christian because people are are coming into the church, and, and we start saying, look at how wonderful I am. And yet here's the oxymoron of those statements. The idea is, is that we're nothing, we're garbage. If you could think of something worse than garbage, think of it in mixed company. I don't want to talk about it. There, we, we are as low as low can be. And it's like one garbage can saying to another garbage can, look at how great I look. That makes no sense. And yet Paul tells the people that if we want to be encouraged, if we want to receive good things, and we must have sober thinking about who we are when it comes to fellowship. This place is not a place of pride. This place should not be a place of arrogance. None of us have arrived, but it's by the grace of God, the favor of God, that we find ourselves where we're at today. We didn't make ourselves. No one can look and say, wow, I'm really glad. I really, uh, wow, I'm surprised by the, the change that they made in themselves. Or, wow, I wish I could be like them. I wonder what they did to change themselves to be who they are in the church. None of that were sinners saved by grace. Notice the next thing we see. Not only embracing the same father and the favor, but we enjoy the same freedom. As we come together, we experience free, or, uh, enjoy freedom. He says grace and peace. This word peace uh, means that when we join the family, which is an extension of God's grace, God's grace is that he saved us. He didn't just save us to be on our own, lone rangers in this world, but then he moves us to be a part of the family of God. There's some grace there. Think about this for a moment. You have a baby. And as you have this baby, the baby's delivered at the hospital. And what you do is as you walk out and your wife is being rolled out in the wheelchair... You head in the car and you set the car seat on the ground and say, all right, you're delivered. Good luck. What a grace we've been given. What a grace that was shown in Acts 9 where Saul is not left to his own devices, but he is given a family where Ananias comes in and says, welcome to the family, brother. Welcome to the family. Let's spend time with you. 
Let's minister to you. Let's give you the needs uh, that you need today. And understand this. It's going to be a myriad of things. For a baby that's brought into our family, in fact, now we've had a baby now six months, little Luke. Little Luke has done absolutely nothing to help us in a family except make some funny faces and laugh a lot. He hasn't brought anything to us. And yet we keep giving and giving. Let me rephrase it. My wife keeps giving and giving and waking up and dealing with this child. Let me tell you something. We should never grow cold or, dis, um, or uh, discouraged or disappointed that we in fellowship have to give and give and give. One of the things that we need to understand is, is that many times in the life of a new believer, it is all about giving. And yet look and think about these people that helped Saul in his point of entry into the church. What they must have been thinking when maybe they were in one of these churches where that same Saul who they had poured into all that time had begun to pour into them. One of the most wonderful things that I have a privilege of being a part of is being uh, growing up in this church. There's a lot of things I don't like about it. Usually the stories that start out, I remember when you. That's a bad statement for me, okay? Because usually it's pretty negative. But the thing I love about it is the joy in people's hearts. And there's not many here today that uh, as the church has grown and changed, there aren't many who can say this, but the sense of joy in the heart that they sit there and say, Tim, I remember when you were this and God has made you this. I remember this, but because of the faithfulness of this local church, we've had an opportunity to help God grow you to be this. And I sit there and I say, praise be to God. It isn't because of me, because they know who I was. It wasn't like it was the college I went to. That doesn't work. It isn't like, you know, I, the, I, the amount of time and energy I poured into the ministry before coming here that made it happen. That didn't happen, but it was that God made a change. So this idea of peace, we're a part of the family of God. Well, what does it mean? Every Christian, as a result of this, has, uh, as a result of Christ, has a peace of heart. Why do we have peace of heart? We're no longer under the condemnation of God. Romans chapter uh, 5, Romans chapter 8 speaks of this, that there now is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to worry about that anymore. There's peace of conscience. We no longer have to struggle with God due to sin. We have peace of mind. Because God loves us and has a plan for us, what can we fear? What can we fear about the things that are going on in our world? We have peace in action, knowing that God is with us, that He'll never leave us or forsake us, that we can go anywhere knowing that God is watching us and taking care of us no matter how difficult the road may be. So what should this place be? It should be a place of peace. One of the things that people should desire to be a part of in the area of fellowship is to come together and say, I am troubled. Why are you troubled? Our response should be, first of all, are you troubled with Christ? Meaning, do you need to make your relationship with Christ uh, better? Is it, is it something that you need to bow the knee to Jesus and fix? What about the uh, peace of conscience? There are some who will come in and, and will find themselves deep in the struggle of sin. And the response for us in the fellowship of the believers should be, we need to no longer live in the way that the ungodly live, but we should pursue Christ and use Him and the victory that He's given to allow us to find victory in our lives. We should have peace of mind. What are we to fear? 
This is something we struggle with, especially in the political realm. We find ourselves being fearful. Uh, we don't like who we've elected, or, or maybe we didn't like the last one we elected. And so we're on this merry-go-round. We say, oh my goodness, what is going to happen to the United States? Oh, this is it. The judgment of God is going to come on us. Well, I don't think that's the case. Why? Because the Bible says he places them up and he will remove them. And the Bible says that things will come and things will go, but God remains the same. Does that mean we don't vote? Does that mean we don't get involved in uh, civil, uh, civic discussions? No. But what that's talking about is we must have the idea that whatever happens in this world, recession, job loss, the loss of a friend, a bad medical report, we are a fellowship of people who are at peace with God. Why? Because when we are at peace with God, we have the opportunity to give God's peace to others. Remember what Jesus said? He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Why would he say that? Because he says, the peace that I want you to have, I can give you. What peace can we give this world? In the world of turbulence that we have, what peace are we able to get? The peace of Jesus Christ. That they bow the knee to Jesus. Their sin is taken care of. That their conscience is taken care of. That they're no longer dealing with the bondage of sin. The peace of mind that comes, that God has a plan. And the peace when it comes to our action. As we serve God, as we uh, pursue God, the peace that we have is, is that what can man do to me? Whether I go and serve the Lord on a foreign island or a for, uh, foreign continent, no matter what takes place in the life of us as Americans, if we preach Christ, we know that God is watching over us and caring for us. So what do we walk away from this morning? Time has eluded me this morning. I don't know where it went, but this is what I want to walk away with this morning because this is foundational as we move forward. We must be a people who find ourselves under the banner of Jesus Christ. The banner of Jesus Christ. The reason we are Village Bible Church is because of Jesus Christ. The reason we worship together is because of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? That means that we are a part of the same family. That means that we are experiencing the same favor. That's why it's important not for us just to talk about uh, the world's events when we grab that cup of coffee, because that's what we say fellowship is. Cup of coffee, maybe a sweet treat in the other hand, and let's talk about what happened this week. Our discussions need to be more of that. The elders recognized that uh, some months ago, and that's why we added this component of testimonies, because we sense that in our busyness and in our uh, pursuit of uh, other things that we find ourselves not talking about what God has done in our lives. Every discussion that you have at Village Bible Church, at, at some point in your discussion, should involve one of these three things. It should involve, as you're talking to another believer, you should talk about the, the experience of being a part of the family of God with the same Father. It should experience the idea that I was saved by grace. It's not about me. And finally, that we would enjoy the same freedom, that as we go through this life, as we see prayer requests on the prayer list, that we would remember the peace that we have is the peace that Jesus Christ gave. And when we do that, we're going to learn next week as we move on in this text, we are going to see that that is what the world is looking for. Are you a part of true fellowship? 
Are you a part of a fellowship that Christ has ordained, that Paul experienced, that we could say that we are servants of Christ together under our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. Lord, what an amazing subject, this subject of fellowship. And Lord, in our individualistic world, we find ourselves not pursuing fellowship many times, but using fellowship as an end uh, to another, uh, or as a means to another end. We find ourselves pursuing uh, other things as a result of it. But Lord, we know that fellowship isn't doing as much as it is being. So Lord, we, we acknowledge these first three things in our text this morning. That these were the three things that Ananias had to accept to be able to show the love and the benevolent care that he did to Saul. And Lord, we know you're going to bring people into this place who will need care like Saul. And Lord, if we don't see them as you see them, if we don't see that they're sinners saved by the same grace as us, then we will no, we'll no longer be able to be effective in ministering to them and sending them out to do the work of service that you've called them to. So Lord, get our hearts right this morning when it comes to what your work is about, that we would find ourselves a part of the family of God, and in doing so, that we would embrace all that are in this place and all who enter in as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, work through us in this week as we move on through this Philippians chapter 1 to see even more of what this fellowship has to offer. Because when we fellowship together, we paint a picture of your Trinity, of the Trinity in heaven. One, but different persons. And so, Lord, we embrace that this morning. And that is our goal and our desire to be like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.